All right, if you have your, your Bible, uh, you can open it up to one verse. We're only going to read one verse today, and uh, it's super simple. I'll read two verses, but really one that you want to kind of put in your Bible. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, that's where we're going to be. That's really the one verse today, and then we'll uh, finish off next week with the Gospels. So, all right, Ben's reading the Bible, part three. This is a series we've been in. I, and I titled the message today, Do This Before Reading the Bible. So the whole heart behind reading this, this whole series was really to prepare you to make you feel like, gosh, if you've ever looked at the Bible and felt intimidated, felt like, you know, I don't know, this feels weird, this feels hard, don't know where to begin, uh, this is the series for you. We're trying to give you a, a high-level overview of the Bible. For a lot of people, they don't know, never had that. And so some of it might feel like a little teacher-ish and feel like, are we in class? Are we in church? What is this? But this is really just to try to give you some insight into the Bible so that when you read it, you feel more confident in your reading. And then hopefully, it also propels you to read it even more. All right, so seven truths I want to give you. And I know that's starting off with a lot of content, but just bear with me here. Seven truths that help us know the Bible's God's Word. All right, now the title of the message is Do This Before Reading God's Word. But I want to give you seven truths to help you understand, to know that the Bible is God's Word. Because there's a lot of confusion sometimes. How do we know it's God's Word if men wrote it and these kind of questions? So I'm going to give you seven truths that can help us understand and believe and know it's God's Word. All right, so here it is. Number one, internal consistency. All right, so again, forgive me on the notes, but if you want to mark these down, you feel welcome to. Internal consistency, or take some photos of the screens. Internal consistency. 40 authors, 66 books over a span of 1,500 years. Now, here's what's amazing about that. When I just said that really fast, but over a span of 1,500 years is where we get Scripture, okay? So the time period, the, the, the gap. 1,500 years. And what's crazy about it is all these different authors, these 40 different authors agreeing upon the central theme that's really built around one man, one moment, one incident, Messiah, Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Now, just wrap your head trying to get 40 different people to agree upon one thing. I can't even agree upon my wife what to have for dinner tonight. Anybody else deal with that battle all the time? Like, hey, what do you want? What do you want? I don't know. What do you want? What do you want? I don't know. What do you want? And this is back and forth. You, I could not get all of you to agree on, on one thing hardly. Like, it's just so hard. But these different authors over a span of 1,500 years have a central theme all put together that we call the Bible today. It's an incredible, incredible book. Just consider this. When you think about uh, the Quran, the Quran is written by, guess how many men? Not 40 different men, one man. One man. One man writes the Quran, we know, and he has a vision over a span of one year. This is a span of 1,500 years. The Quran is written over a span of one year. Written by one man who was illiterate, and so he had to speak it to his followers. Then those followers actually disagreed upon what he said, so they couldn't figure it out. So they call in one man to decide what was authentic, and then he decided what was authentic from Muhammad. And then based on what he thought Muhammad said, that's the final, and they burned all the discrepancies. And then we don't have those anymore. And that's it. And that's the Quran. When you put the Quran up the Bible, they don't even compare 1,500 years, 40 different authors, 66 different letters. I and mean, this is an incredible book that you hold in your hand or on your phone, right? Wherever your Bible is. The internal consistency is incredible. Number two, manuscript reliability. 
Archaeologists have discovered over 5,800 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. They continue to find new manuscripts all the time that still support the authenticity and the reliability of Scripture. In 2016, they found a manuscript over 2,000 years old. And here's what's most incredible. Out of all these archaeological findings and discoveries, none of these findings has ever led to a major revision of Scripture. I mean, it's not like they, they read, they find something 2,000 years ago, and then they corresponded or kind of parallel it to what's written today, and it's so close enough, no revision needed. That's incredible, right? Like, you text your friend, and then they text somebody else what you said. You remember that whole, remember that game where you'd start with somebody, and it goes to the next person, and by the end, it's like something completely different? Wrap your head around this. They've been doing that for 2,000 years with Scripture and no revision necessary. It's still the same writings. It's incredible, the manuscript of reliabilities. Anybody pumped about the Bible? Okay, I am. All right. Got to start binging it. It's incredible. All right. Historical accuracy, number three. Clay tablets dating to the 2300 BC have been found in Syria, strongly supporting Old Testament stories, vocabulary, geography, Listen, no facts presented in the Old or New Testament has ever been proven false, historically speaking. It's the history is reliable. It's there. It's accurate. It's historically accurate. And it cannot be refuted from the historical side of things. One man wrote that it may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. Scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirm in clear outline or exact detail historical statements in the Bible. And by the same token, proper evaluation of biblical descriptions has often led to amazing discoveries, one archaeologist wrote. Man, the support of evidence that we have of Scripture is incredible. Number four, fulfilled prophecy. Over 300 Old Testament prophecies that Jesus fulfilled on earth about his birth, life, death, and resurrection. One man who I read named Alfred Edersheim, a Jewish scholar, found that 456 prophecies referring to the Messiah alone or things that would occur in his lifetime. Wrap your head around that. Wrap your head around something being spoken a thousand years before and then a thousand years later it gets fulfilled and and so many of these prophetic words. Wrap your head around this truth. This is ultimately why you're here. If you're a follower of Christ or why Christianity even exists. Christianity, by the way, does not exist because of a Bible. The reason why Christianity exists is because of an event that occurred. Amen to that? And you say, what event happened? I'm going to tell you about the event. This man named Jesus, who historically speaking, is, it's true, like he lived no one refutes that. And he went to the cross. No one refutes that. Like he died. That's true. He went to a cross. Here's what Jesus said. Jesus predicted his own death, that he would die. Well, it's not hard to predict a death because you can say, I'm going to die. That's prediction. And you're right. If you said you're going to die, you're probably going to die. But he predicted how he'd die. And he would predict close enough to when he's going to die. And then he did something incredible. He predicted that he would come back to life three days later. And then he pulled it off. So any man who predicts their death and resurrection and pulls it off, you should pay attention to whatever that guy has to say. Anybody here want to go ahead and take a chance at predicting your own resurrection? 
I mean, that'd be pretty incredible. And if you pull that off, I will probably start paying attention to what you say. But until then, not going to do it. <laughs> Does that make sense? This man pulled it off. I mean, the fulfillment of prophecy is incredible. The Bible is an amazing book. Number five, eyewitness testimony. Keep in mind, many of the witnesses that we read about, people that we read about in Scripture gave their life for this. They didn't have the Bible to rely on. It was their they saw it, they experienced it, and then they wrote it down. This is incredible. And they would begin to write down, for God so loved the world that he gave his only one and only son. This is incredible. This love. I mean, just think about the stories, these eyewitness testimony. And it's been carried out over a span of 1,500 years. And you have Moses' writing, you have Joshua, you have different uh, priests and people would write and these prophets would write. This is incredible. I've got to write this down. That all mankind would maybe know about this. And they, they didn't even know, of course, what we know today about how it would be passed down. But it's incredible that each of these different 40 authors would be uh, passionately writing down, transcribing, and letting people know about this truth. The eyewitness testimony of the story of the Messiah is incredible. It's an incredible book. Number six, Timeless authority. For centuries, people have tried to prove the Bible false, and none have succeeded. During the Middle Ages, the Roman Catholic Church burned thousands of copies of the Bible, but in spite of it, the Bible is printed on today. Voltaire, who died in 1778, made his attempt to destroy the Bible. He boldly made a prediction that in 100 years, Bible and Christianity would have been swept from existence and into oblivion. That was in 1778. This profound statement was made that Christianity would be done away with. But his efforts would fail and his prophetic word would fail, of course. In fact, within 100 years, the very printing press upon which Voltaire had printed, his own literature was being used to print copies of the Bible. And exactly 100 years later, after making this, procla this, this proclaiming truth that the uh, Bible would go out of the way and Christianity would fall apart, 100 years later, now he said, in 100 years, it'll be gone. 100 years later, they were printing Bibles and they were storing Bibles in his home after he was dead to be shipped out and sent all over the world. Did you hear what I just said? Oh, that's a coincidence. That's just kind of cool fact. It's not a coincidence. That's God saying you got it wrong. And look what the scripture says in 1 Peter 24, 25. All people like Voltaire who lie like, are like grass. Yeah, they're just like him. And, they're, and their glory is like the flowers of the field. And their grass withers and the flowers fall. But the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that is preached to you. Anybody excited about that at all? Like, just, just wrap your head around what you hold in your hand. And this is incredible. And, and so, the word that I preach to you today is the same word that I just described to you. That people have tried to burn and refute and get rid of, and they can't. Because the word of God endures forever. It's incredible. Number seven, the last one, supernatural authenticity. Over the course of human his history, this book has transformed millions and millions of lives. And, and I know this. Many of you have been transformed by this book. Many of you have, have watching online or you're here and, and you picked up the book. And you're like, God, I, I'm in a tough spot. I need something. And you picked it up and you read it. And it just said something to you. And you, and you can't even explain it. But it's transformed your life. Or somebody sent you a text message and a verse. And you're like, 
how did you know? Or you sat inside of a similar service or something like this, and uh, the person was speaking or teaching from the stage, and you're like, are they talking to me? Did they read my journal yesterday? Anybody ever been like that at all? And what's incredible is all the pastors, we have a meeting all around the world every single Tuesday, and we just talk about all your journals. That's, that's what we do. We just share information. No, it's, it's this, this true, this supernatural authenticity. There's this reality that this is a supernatural thing. It just can't be explained. And we say something, you hear something, it's like, gosh, only God could do something like that. It's a supernatural book. It goes beyond human comprehension. In many ways. And can I just say this truth as we go on in this? And this is not one of the truths to write down, but it's a truth nonetheless. Here's what you will discover if you read the Bible. The more you read it, the less you know. The more you read it, the less you realize you know. It is a book that just like it never ends in the knowledge and the wisdom. And it keeps on going. And then you get up and you, and you might even teach on it. And you might talk on it. And then years later, you're like, ah, oh, I don't know about that anymore. It's incredible. It's just like the amount of revelation that comes. The more you learn the Bible, the less you're going to realize you know. It's an incredible, incredible book. All right? So with all that in mind, you would think getting people to read this book that I just described to you, that is written by men but inspired by God, that, I mean, throughout all generations, outsells, you would think people are reading this thing all the time, right? You would think, well, who in their right mind would not read this? I mean, look at the literature, the historical accuracy, the reliability. This is incredible. But let me show you some data that suggests to you quite the opposite is happening. We'll put a couple of charts on the screen. And I rarely go through stats, like I rarely do. But this is so compelling. I felt like this is something maybe we should spend some time on for just a minute. Quite the opposite is happening in our world when it comes to reading the Bible, all right? All right, so look at this first chart that we have up on the screen, and it should show a decline. You should see this in 2021. It's kind of hard for you to see, but I'll guide you through it, okay? If you see the massive dip, that's 2022. These, uh, done, these surveys are done in January, so it really references the year prior, but look at this. Roughly 26 million people have mostly or completely stopped reading the Bible in the last year. Notice in 2021, you see kind of this increase. Why? Because COVID, people need God, right? People crying out. Now, here's what's really interesting about this data that you're looking at on the screen. At the very bottom, it says Bible users. That is the data we're looking at. This is how we just, how do you define a Bible user? That's basically it. A Bible user is defined as those who read the Bible at least three to four times each year on their own outside of church. So we're calling a Bible user a person not just has an app on their phone, they're saying this is the person who reads the Bible three to four times a year. I mean, that's how we're defining a Bible user. So when I talk about Bible users and I show you these stats, just wrap your head. Remember, these aren't like weekly Bible readers. These are just three to four times a year outside of church. Not describing to you how many sentences they're reading. So just, just wrap your head around this. Okay, so here's how it gets broken down. We'll throw another chart up. So just follow me on these charts. They were asked, how often do you use the Bible on your own? Look at this. Nearly four in 10 Americans say they've never read the Bible outside of church. 40% of Americans, your neighbors, have never read the Bible on their own. It's incredible. And it's really incredible when you compare it to how many people say they're Christians, which is way more than 40%. 
This is just an incredible thought. Seven days a week, 10%, right? It kind of keeps going down. But I just want you to focus on this. 40% have never read the Bible on their own. It's a lot of people. Okay. So why aren't more people reading the Bible? Oh, they're all heathens. They're just sinners. You know? No, no, no. It's real practical. And for some of you, you're on that screen too. And you know where you fall. Okay? All right. So the reasons, a couple we'll just go through. The first one I want to show you is because it does not add meaning to their life. Look at this chart we'll put up on the screen. And you'll notice a trend from those who are elders to those who are in Gen Z. Okay? All right? So Gen Z, by the way, is anyone ages 10 to 25. If you're between 10 and 25, raise your hand in the room. All all our Gen Zs. All right, Gen Zs. Here we are. So you got Gen Zs. And how about our Gen X? Gen X, is that the right one? Millennials. Any millennials in the house? Or millennials? Yeah, okay. It's a couple millennials. All right. Anybody has no clue of what generation they're born in. You're so old, you're like, I don't even remember what my generation is. Okay. <laughs> All right. So I want you just to notice a trend here. The Bible contains everything a person needs to know to live a meaningful life. I want you to see this. What I want you to notice is that on the screen it says, when you look at the green, okay, that's the elders. Those are people age 77 and older. And then when you look at Gen Z, ages 10 to 25. If you notice the chart, if you were all in one kind of vertical line, it's just not kind of displaced, but strongly agree that it adds meaning to your life. People over the age of 77, 44% would say, yeah, it adds meaning to your life. But go look at the millennials. 19% of millennials would tell you that reading the Bible does not add meaning to your life. If you want to know who a millennial is, that's ages 26 to 41. Those are your young families raising children today. 19% of them do not believe that reading the Bible adds meaning to your life. You don't, if you don't believe the stat, just go ask a millennial. Ask someone ages 26 to 41, does reading the Bible add meaning to your life? Or how often do you read it? Because if it added meaning to your life, then you'd be reading it. It's incredible. But you talk to an older person, 77 years of age, and they say, absolutely. And then if the reverse is true, strongly disagree, you reverse the stat naturally. Okay. Second reason why people aren't reading the Bible, maybe, character development. They were asked, describe closely, like talk about, does it help character development of a child? The Bible reading is an important component of a child's character development. Look at 47%. All, all the people above 77 were like, yes. These kids need the Bible. But then all our millennials and all our Gen Zs, all our young families, 28% of my generation said no. That reading the Bible does not help produce character in children. It's incredible. Just some thoughts to throw your way today. All right. Number five, something else broke another chart up, closely describes why people don't read the Bible. And I think this is absolutely so critical to put up because I think they were asked, what is the reason, essentially, that closely describes why you don't pick up and read the Bible? And here's some of the answers that you gave. And this is really about us and the answers we gave, right? Not enough time. My generation and most of them would say, not enough time. I don't have the time to read it, which is a lie. Okay, let's move on. Don't know, because we have enough time, you know, like there's 24 hours a day, you have enough time. It says, don't know where to start, right? Like, like most of the people that read, look at it, Gen Z, 30% of ages 10 to 25 years of age don't read the Bible because they don't know where to start. 
Has anyone, just, just curious, you just didn't read the Bible because you didn't know where to start? Has that ever happened to you in your life? You're like, I don't know where to begin. Raise your hand high. Don't be ashamed. Be proud. I'm raising my hand too. I had a days. So I'm like, yeah, raise my hand. Yeah, I didn't know where to start. Now, here's what God did. So take notes. You've got to take notes. If you listen to one thing I say because you don't read the Bible because you don't know where to start, I'm about to tell you where to start. And there's two places in Scripture I recommend you start. And God also gave you a really clear instruction on where to start because he gave you two places on where to start. And here's the first place that he tells his people to start because he knew what you didn't know. He's like, hey, I know one day you're going to wonder, where do I start? And he wanted to make it so clear to you where to start that he tells you where to start, all right? Genesis chapter one, verse one, here's what it says. In the beginning. Okay, so if you're like, well, I don't want to read the Old Testament. I don't like the Old Testament. You know, God knew. He knew that some people were like, ah, we don't need the old. We only got the new. I don't want the old stuff. I just want the new stuff. So, so he went and had a guy named John write these three words down in John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning. So I just gave you two places you can start. Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, or John chapter 1, in the beginning. All right. Moving on. So, amen to that? All right. That solves that. You should just tell everybody. Just put it on social media. Everybody already started reading the Bible. In the beginning. Okay. It's crazy how difficult we can make these things. All right. So, language difficult. Okay. Different ones. All right. Don't feel excited about it. Don't understand the background. All these different reasons. Don't know where to start. Not enough time are the top two reasons. Don't know where to begin. Wrap your head around this. That you have percentage of people not opening the Bible because they don't know where to start. Which really goes back down to a generational thing because the less you read it, the more, the less you know about it, you don't know where to start, everybody gets confused by it, and so it just gets kind of pushed to the side more and more and more and more. Okay. Incredible. I know I've spent a lot of time talking to you about the Bible. I get it. I've just done a lot of setup, why people don't read it, and I know most of you are like, oh, that's what's wrong with the world. We're not reading the Bible today. I, I don't think it's that. I, I want you to follow me on this. Before you uh, just sit there and think about how we need to get more people to read the Bible, I think there's something that you should know. And it's what the author of Proverbs and the kind of section of books that we're going to unpack today wants people to know. In other words, if you don't do this, the reading the Bible thing won't happen. If you want it, the foundation of getting people to read the Bible isn't putting the Bible in their hands saying, hey, just read the Bible. We've been doing that for a long time. You need to read the Bible. The Bible says you need to read the Bible. You need to read the Bible. Yeah, but, but people aren't reading the Bible for lots of reasons. But, but I really think it comes down to something that the author of Proverbs says. That's in this section of the book that we're going to unpack today. So the section of books that we're going to unpack is what's called the poetic or wisdom literature. These are the books of Job, Ecclesiastes, Psalms, Proverbs, and Songs of Solomon. Okay, we'll put it up on the screen. These five books of the Bible are known as what's called wisdom literature. So you can kind of look at genre and say kind of a section of scripture. And so I kind of wrote down some things for you, Job, learning to trust God in the midst of trials, all kinds of suffering. But ultimately, it's a book that teaches us wisdom because it's a book that teaches us how to live wisely even in the midst of suffering. And Job, his faith is incredible and his trust in God is incredible even in the midst of great persecution and hardships and trials. So that's what Job's all about. Ecclesiastes, life without God is meaningless and pointless. And so you have this really wealthy guy seems to be writing all about how you know, life is pointless unless you have God involved inside of it. And so that's what Ecclesiastes is all about. And you have Psalms, various writings of despair, depression, praise, all kinds of different letters, different authors. 
A lot of them are written by King David, but a lot of some aren't. And so you get these psalms and these various poems or songs that people even sing today. Proverbs, uh, wisdom, we're going to read Proverbs today, the ways of the wise. All kind of wise sayings, all kind of wise statements. And so really good stuff there. And then Songs of Solomon is hot and heavy, love, romance, all kinds of good stuff in there. And, and a lot of sex, it's crazy. Um, welcome sixth graders to the room. Okay, so, but, uh, but uh, it, it's just an incredible book, okay? And my daughter's in here now sixth grade too. So I knew that when I'd be saying this today. I'm like, oh, here we go. Yep, here we go. All right, so, uh, but man, it, it's a hot and heavy book. It, has anyone ever read the book of Songs of Solomon? Who has not read it? Okay, you you guys got to read this stuff, man. It's crazy good. And it's really good. In fact, we're going to do a whole series in Songs of Solomon. We're going to call it Love Songs in February. I'm going to do a whole teaching on the book of Songs of Solomon. And if you're married, you better say thank you when I'm done with that series. Because you're going to have a lot of fun. It's going to be incredible. Okay. (laughs) Some of you are like, you have no idea. Well, because you don't read it. But if you read it, man, you would know. It's going to be a great, great, powerful series. All right. I'm pumped about it. Okay, all right, so, all right, my mind's all on kind of, I got to get my mind back because I just thought about all kinds of stuff about Songs of Solomon. And man, if you, see, you don't know. See, I can tell you don't know. That's why you're like, what is he talking about? But if you, if you, if you know it, man, it's, it gets heavy. Yeah, it's like rated. It's not even rated, right? Yeah, it's, it gets heavy. Seriously. All right. Okay, Proverbs, <laughs> chapter 9, chapter 9, verse 10. In the book of Proverbs, the author gives some great wisdom on what we should consider before reading the Bible. Here's the greatest thing that you should know before ever reading the Bible. This is it. This is what you came to hear today. You ready? Here it is. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. That's it. That's the verse. That's the verse. So before you ever read the Bible, this is the one thing you should know. The one thing you should do before reading the Bible is know this verse. The fear of the Lord is the foundation of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of all the wisdom. All right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning. The word fear is so important here. The word fear is a Hebrew word that means to respect or to have reverence. It's not just to be afraid of per se, although it can mean that in Scripture. That would support that as well. But it's to have respect and reverence. In Deuteronomy 2.25, it shows there's a reality of respect. How many of you have had, you know, you have a, you have a, you have a, you have a dad growing up or something or, you know, somebody, that, a coach, and you're like, ah, I'm just afraid of him. And even though I could probably take him out, I just, I'm just afraid of him. He could beat me up. He could push me down. He could tie me up, you know, in different knots. And like, you know, you just had this respect for a dad or respect for some authority, respect for a coach that you had or something like that. You're like, I just want to mess with that guy. Mess with that individual. Anybody have somebody like that in their life growing up? Or, you know, maybe it was a, a, a teammate or a friend in school. It's like, I just respect them because what they could probably do to me. There's a respect there for God. This is what it's speaking to. A- another word might mean the word reverence. All right, to respect in context would be to have respect like servants would fear their master. So think about a slave who would fear their master. And so they would kind of have to do what they say and follow their guidelines and follow their rules or else suffer consequences for it. In that context, it's kind of speaking to the same type of fear, a reverence, a respect for who God is and for God himself. 
Fear also can denote reverence or awe in a person feels in the presence of greatness. Have you guys ever been in the room in the presence of greatness before? I'm just curious. Anybody ever been in a room with somebody? Who? Yeah, who was the person? Yeah, presence of greatness. Yeah, Pastor Rick, what happened? Amen. Anybody else been in the presence of greatness, like an athlete or something like that? Anybody ever been? None of you have been? Okay, well, here's what you can do. You can go home and tell all your friends that today you are in the presence of greatness. Anybody feeling it? <laughs> no? I was just curious. I thought I'd go for that joke and didn't know if you guys would be like. So go, you, you're now in it, okay? This is what it feels like right here. You are in the presence of greatness. Want to take a photo? You can. All right, this is the, I'm just joking. If you're first time, I'm joking, I promise, no. But there is a, when you get into the presence of greatness, I was in a movie, actually, I was an extra in a movie with Al Pacino and Jamie Foxx, and, and Al Pacino had his own little chair set up and his own little chess table set up, and then, like, when he walked down, like, everybody paid attention, and it just gave me a picture always to remember about how, like, people see people of greatness, and there's, like, a respect, and he had his own golf cart that would take him back to start the whole thing over and this kind of whole thing, and then Jamie Foxx was still beginning up in his career, and so he had to walk the 110 yards, so he would walk, literally, this is, this is, this is just a quick thought, this is Kind of funny how it went, but Jamie Foxx would have to like walk 110 yards to go back to start the whole scene over again, and they would golf cart Al Pacino. Then Al Pacino would sit there and wait for Jamie in his golf cart. Then Jamie would get back, and then they'd go back and do it again, do it again. And all it showed me was like, okay, you haven't made it, you've made it. You know, like that's what it looks like, Al Pacino, you've made it. And he has a little chair and his name on it. Here's the point. Reverence and respect of God. The Bible says the fear of God is like to have this reverence, understanding the greatness and the presence of greatness that you're in. This is what it means to fear God. So when it says fear God, keep that in your mind, to have respect for his greatness. Okay, and it says, the writer says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Key truth, the fear of the Lord is a combination of respect and reverence. So I just want you to imagine how more often you or myself or maybe our world would read the scriptures if you really, really had respect and reverence. People not reading the Bible, it's not because we have a Bible problem, it's because we have a people problem in what they respect and what they revere. In other words, it's just like simply saying this, do you really understand what you hold in the palm of your hand or on your device. People have literally given their lives for this. And I tried to find a photo of a Bible. I went through a couple of different museums in my life and different places of scripture and archaeological findings. And I remember the first time I ever saw a Bible with blood spilled all over it. And it rocked my world. And it made me just have such appreciation and gratitude that I get to pick this thing up because people have given their life over it. People who have been martyred for their faith, which we're going to do a series in October on martyrs. And people have died and been murdered and killed for their faith so you could hold this in your hand. And held it close to their chest. And when they were stabbed in the back, blood spilled out over it so that you could still hold it in your hand today. Do you realize who, who wrote this? You say men wrote it. Yeah, but God inspired it. 
I mean, this is ultimately God's words, the creator of the world, the one who made sun, moon, stars, like all that stuff that you see, all the mountains, everything, the one who breathes life into your lungs, the one who's causing you to live today, the one who formed you in your mother's room wrote this. It's a powerful, powerful book, and it's an amazing, amazing letter written by an incredible God. Respect and revere, acknowledging who he is. And you do that, you find yourself reading the Bible a lot more. Why? Because you respect and you acknowledge who he is. When you don't have respect or reverence for the Lord, it becomes like a book on your shelf like anything else. I'll get to it when I can. It changes everything when you see it differently. The writer says, man, the beginning of the wisdom is the fear of the Lord. That's where it starts. It doesn't start by getting somebody to read your Bible. If you read the Bible without the fear of the Lord, you won't read it long. You won't last long. Why? Because there's no fear of the Lord in you. There's no respect and reverence for who he is. But the more you respect and revere who he is, the more you find yourself in his word. In other words, you can't go home, tell your kids, read the Bible, you better read the Bible. They're just going to say, yeah, whatever, 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 whatever. It's because they don't have the fear of the Lord is what the writer of Proverbs 9 says. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Respect and reverence for who God is. And when you respect and revere who he is, you want to hear what he has to say. Those who fear the Lord recognize God for who he is. The more you recognize God for who he is, the more you'll desire to discover about him. The more you discover about him, the more you're going to recognize him for who he is. It goes the same. So who is he? Well, actually, some data reveals one more chart of people who have read the Bible, and here's what they discovered about him as they read the Bible. We'll put this up. Reasons why people did read the Bible and why they used the Bible. This is incredible. Number one reason amongst all generations of people was it brings me closer to God. I think that's fascinating. In other words, when you read the scriptures, they said, I feel closer to God as I read it. So he has written it in such a way that as you read it, he reveals himself more to you. And the scriptures even say, those who seek me find me. Man, so when you read the Bible, you get closer to Jesus. Look at this one. This one really put something in my heart for our young people. And so if you're a parent or if not, I mean, this should just move your heart. But if you look at it, it says, uh, I need comfort. Look at the top right corner. It says, I need comfort. 24% of Generation Z, ages 10 to 25, said that what they most get out of this is the word comfort. It also tells me that the generation that we're seeing in is hurting because when they read it, they're looking for comfort, but then they find it. When I read it, I find comfort. And what did Jesus say that he would send to the earth as he ascended back up into heaven? Comforter, his Holy Spirit. And yet people today find comfort in his words. And it's the young people who are finding comfort in his world, in his word, because I believe this personal opinion, because they've looked at the world and they looked at the millennials. 
And they looked at moms and dads, and they looked at my generation, and they're looking at previous generations saying, it hasn't worked. You don't provide me comfort, and so I'm going somewhere else. Then they begin to find the real comforter. Man, it's just incredible. When I saw that, I was just like, gosh, it's telling. It, It speaks to where our generation is and where our current generation is. It shows me how to treat others. So it does build character, yes. It gives me wisdom, yes. It helps me discern God's will for my life, yes. So when you read the scriptures, it gives you wisdom, it gives you discernment, it helps you understand, it helps you grow character, helps you grow closer to God. Look at all of the great benefits that people get when they read the Bible. It's not like it's just, it's like getting us closer into heaven, but it's more revelation of who God is. Here's the one thing you should do before reading the Bible. Recognize him before you read about him. What I mean by that, this is how it looks. This is as practical as I can be as we kind of wrap this whole thing up, okay? As practical as I can make it for you, before you read the Bible, just begin to recognize him before he is. Like this. Lord, you're the creator of the world. Nothing is too hard for you. And then begin to read. Recognize him before you read about him. Lord, everything you say is perfect. Lord, help me to understand. You promised that you would give me wisdom and you love to give wisdom. So give me wisdom as I look for the solution to this particular issue or thing in my life. Begin to recognize him. Lord, thank you for the life that I have. Thank you, God, for what you've given me. And begin to show him gratitude. Recognize him before you read about him. When you don't do what the author of Proverbs says and you begin just to read about him without recognizing who he is, without the fear of the Lord, what you read about him won't last long. But when you realize who you're coming to, all of a sudden it changes everything. Just as an example, if you are, and this uh, golf comes to my mind. I don't know why golf is coming to my mind, but golf comes to my mind. If, if you're watching Tiger Woods play golf or one of these great golfers or something, you're going to pay attention to what he says because of the results that he's provided. I'll say it again. If you, if you trust this golfer who's really good, the only reason why you trust him is because of the results that he's provided you. So he has results. And so those results turn into trust, and so you trust what he says because he's got results. And so if Tiger Woods said, this is what you got to start doing to start having a better swing, you do whatever Tiger Woods said because he's got results. And his results have been proven. And so you would just start to say, okay, I'll do whatever Tiger says. I will trust what he says. I will show reverence and respect. Look at the results that he's provided. And so I trust what he says. If you had a, had a great chef, you know, I don't know, anything about cooking, if you like to cook, and you just pay attention to, you know, Paula Dean, I don't know, somebody who cooks really well, somebody who likes some chef or whatever, and they're just proven results, you'd say, I'll listen to what you have to say. That's what you think about this. You trust people all the time who have proven results. In fact, the results lead to trust. And when they have great results or success or business, in fact, you'll pay thousands of dollars to go sit with people to tell you about how to run your company because they have results. And their company is just taking money from you, which is a whole other thing. But you'll go and you'll pay money because they have results. And you'll listen to what they say because they have results. And they have the results that you want. You ready for this? Did you wrap this whole thing up? Just, just follow me on this. You know what the result of Jesus was? Like, way better than a great golf swing. Like, like, he pulled off his own resurrection. Like, he rose from the dead. Like, he pulled that off. So he, he went to a cross and he predicted it. And then he predicted that he would rise from the grave. And he did. 
according to many eyewitnesses who saw it, witnessed it, saw it, wrote it, and he pulled it off. I mean, this guy's incredible. So if you want wisdom, why not ask the guy who predicted his own death and resurrection? Amen? Like, he knows what he's talking about. And he was there in the beginning, before there was the beginning. Like, he was there. And his wisdom is inconceivable. And his love abounds, and his grace carries on more and more and more and more and more. I hope somehow my words today have encouraged you, if not maybe even inspired you, to recognize him for who he is before you go and read about him. What I hope I did not do is somehow beat you up or make you feel bad or wrong for not reading the Bible. No, 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 no. What I hope I did is let you know how amazing this book is, how amazing our God is, and when you recognize him for who he is before you read it, it'll change everything about your life. You begin to recognize God for who he is before you read all about him. It may change everything about your life. So I think you should read it. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for this amazing word, God. And I pray that as people here on the sound of my voice watching online or here in this room now, God, if they do not know you or they would choose to know you, they would choose to follow you. And today, I encourage you, if that is you, and you say, I want to give my life to Jesus, then you just tell him right where you are. Today, I give you my life. I give you my life. I surrender my life, and I confess you as Lord of my life. Help me, God, to discover and learn more about you and your love and your grace. If you just say that to him and you make that decision and say yes to that, then the best thing you could do is tell somebody. Your next step is just to tell somebody. Tell somebody here in our church. Tell somebody as you're walking out, hey, I need a Bible, or hey, I want to make a decision to follow Jesus. Let us know on your connection card and turn that in. We want to help you and walk through that decision with you. But Father, I thank you, Lord, for your word, and we thank you for it. And help us, Lord, as we read your word, help us to learn more and more about it and to grow in our knowledge of it and our understanding of it so ultimately we can learn more about you. In Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. Amen.